This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hello, everybody. This my name is Christos Cholkas, and I am with Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast. It's an absolute uh, joy and pleasure to be talking with Sam today. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Christos Tolkos. Uh, can't believe I'm saying that, uh, so I'm going to say it again. Thank you so much for the introduction there, Christos Tolkos. Uh, hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. person whom you just heard introducing this episode of the program is none other than today's guest, Christos Tolkos. Yes, it is that particular Christos Tolkos that, uh, that you all know. Uh, I dare say. He's certainly one of my favourite writers. It was an incredibly surreal experience getting the chance to talk to Christos Tolkos um, about his new novel, Seven and a Half. Uh, Seven and a Half is set... Uh, some people have said it's auto-fiction. I don't really think it's entirely that. I think it's a nice blending of uh, some real life as well as, as fictional elements and or more fictional rather than uh, non-fictional elements. But it's about a writer, Christo, who has taken himself away to, I believe it remains an unnamed little uh, slice of idyllic heaven-like area within a coastal area of New South Wales or Victoria. Again, I don't think it's ever specifically mentioned where it is. But anyway, it is about a writer uh, uh, at their kind of uh, uh, later stages of their career going to uh, this idyllic retreat away to work on a novel that they don't have too much of an idea as to what it's going to be as yet when we first meet them. Uh, but as they kind of venture out and appreciate the breathtaking sort of uh, natural Australian beauty around them, it sort of starts to take form. It's also interwoven with many of their sort of uh, formative memories from their from their youth as uh, Greek Australian immigrant or parents of Greek Australian immigrants within the Melbourne sort of area as well. So it uh, encompasses everything that you would expect in a Christos novel. So uh, lots to do with sexuality as well and appreciation of um, fine art and culture and writing and books and literature. I mean, it's just astonishing that Christos knows and kind of weaves into his novels there. But um, anyway, I digress because I don't want to spoil it too much. But uh, yeah, this was an absolute pleasure getting the chance to talk to Christos and totally surreal uh, for me because he's just been one of my favorite writers for a long time, favorite Australian writers for a long time. Um, word to the warning, uh, it's not a trigger warning, but the audio for Christos is not that good. I think poor Christos had to um, hotspot his phone because it's uh, like here in smelly Sydney, it's kind of torrential rain at the moment uh, where I think he is hailing from in ye old Melbourne town as well. So look, it dips in and out sometimes. I was hoping that it would, uh, it would just be within the Zoom itself, but unfortunately it's not. Uh, but I, I'm sincerely hoping that's not going to detract from your enjoyment of the interview because it was just... Um, Certainly for me, the one getting to ask the questions, it was an absolute uh, unadulterated bit of enjoyment uh, pleasure there. So I'm hoping that uh, that you can enjoy that as well. Uh, if you do hear an awkward pause or something like that, that is because it's just dipping out. But uh, keep listening because the gems that keep coming from the mind of Christos Tolkos as he talks to me uh, happen in rapid profusion and there's many that uh, that make nice sense and are easily audible. But uh, in the interim, please everyone give a big digital round of applause to author Christos Tolkos talking to me about his new novel, Seven and a Half. Christos, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this rainy, drear day. How are you doing? 
Um, it's an absolute pleasure, Sam. Yes, it's a rainy, dreary day down here in Melbourne as well. I think it's across the East Coast. I think we're supposed to be getting bombarded with it for a few days, no? Oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm okay about it. Uh, maybe that's because I'm a Melbourne boy. <laughs> I'm used to the, the weather being quite erratic. Hey, same with Sydney. But, um, Christos, I wanted to ask, normally... I start off by asking where the idea originated from, but with you in your particular case, I really wanted to hear a little bit of an overview or a, a description of the transition from writing Damascus, which is such a different book to seven and a half. I wanted to hear a little bit about that because you've gone from writing something which is so steep within like historical, historical setting, multiple characters, perspectives and views to this uh, very contemporary sort of setting and very singularly focused on one particular character, much for introspection. I wanted to know a little bit about the overview of how you, you came to that and what, uh, what went into that. Uh, look, it, it is really true. It's a very different experience writing uh, Seven and a Half to Damascus. You know, Damascus took me five years mm. of of really, and there, there was also, because I was dealing with Christianity and, the, and mm. before it had its name, you know, just the, the roots of this ethical idea that I think still holds so much sway, even amongst us, those of us who consider ourselves fully secular or a, even an atheist. I'm not an atheist, I'm a, an agnostic. I may be quite the classical agnostic. Um, but it was also, so there was the research which was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, I, I've talked about it as being the first time I really re I realised what it meant to be a good student. I was an adequate student um, when I was young, but I wasn't a good student. And, uh, whereas uh, I, I really wanted to steep myself in theology, philosophy, history, um, in, in beginning Damascus. And so there was a year of where I shut myself off from the world and, and, and immersed myself in that, in that research. And then I started the writing and the writing was hard, Sam. The mm. Damascus, the first draft is turgid. <laughs> it's really difficult. Uh, but, you know, I persevered and persevered because there was something I wanted to understand about that ethical idea. And I also wanted to see if I could use fiction to illuminate something about the nature of faith and doubt. So that process took such a long time. Mm. After Damascus, uh, I guess I did have it in my mind that I wanted to go somewhere in the contemporary again, you know, to, 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 to leave the past. Like all of us, the, the, the last few years have been kind of dominated by questions of authority and about writing, about, and uh, the, for me, kind of complexity and uh, awfulness of some of the enraged political debate. And just, uh, so I started this other work called Resentment, because uh, I'm really fascinated by that, that idea. Of, um, of, and I think it's a really poisonous notion, resentment. And it was going to be a contemporary fiction about a, a group of siblings who have very different views about how the world is. And I started writing it and it was going nowhere. It was, and I think it was because I was too embroiled. Uh, you know, it sounded terribly didactic, even <clears throat> as I was writing. I couldn't seem to find the story to, to, to tell. Uh, but I, you know, I think part of the uh, 
the armory of developed as a writer, and this has just come through the experience of being a writer, is just to be there every day at the desk writing. Mm. I was continuing, I was continuing to do so, even when I felt sick to my stomach because I thought the book was going nowhere. And, and then, and this is, I can't separate for you the story of how Seven and a Half happened. Mm. I mean, the, 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 the actual story of how it began, I began writing this book is, is important. Uh, just the that I had both the shadow of the man of the book that was going nowhere. And uh, my partner Wayne and I had, uh, in March last year, it was the 10th of March, we landed in London. I've got a week's work and then we're, we've hired a car from Glasgow and we're going to go travelling through the British Isles to celebrate our 35th anniversary. And within a week, something called COVID happens and we have to get out. I mean, and, and it's... It feels so long ago now. That's the strange elongation of time that has happened through this pandemic. But, mm. you know, we land in London. Our friends take us out. We are hugging them. We're kissing them. We're embracing. We're, we're having a great time. And within a week, Sam, it all, all changes. And mm. I wake up on a week afterwards and say to Wayne, I think we've got to get back home. Fortunately, and there, this is fortunate, we were able to get a plane back that, it was a Sunday morning in, in Scotland. Because we had done it for a travel agent, and I'm, I'm, I want to kiss his feet. He organised a flight. I couldn't get on the phone to the airline. I couldn't. The world was going mad. And he got us a flight on the Thursday. We flew into home on the 19th. Two days later, I get up in the morning and I start writing this book, Seven and a Half. Wow, and, okay. And I do it as a bit of a... Uh, an exercise to keep the creative juices flowing, right? Mm. Like it, uh, but clearly, I'd ha it was like all the ideas that I've been thinking about in the novel that I'd started writing and which was going nowhere suddenly seemed to make sense when I created a character called Christos Chalpas <laughs> and was able to start to, um, to write in his voice. And I'm being really careful there because obviously I am Christos Chalpas and there's an element of biography. But the best way I can explain it is the freedom that I discovered in writing Seven and a Half was that everyone asks you when you write, you know, from my first book, Loaded, how much of it is you, Christos? How much of it is you? How much is Ari you in Loaded, right? I, I wanted to do the reverse with this book and say, and kind of present to the reader uh, nominally a biography, but that where you you have to ask how much of this is fiction, <laughs> you know that that's what I wanted to do. And look, uh, I think uh, you know the title came. I, I just knew the title immediately. It was because one of my favourite films is the Fellini film, mm. and a Half, which is about a working on his nine films, the ninth film. Who who wonders what the point is? <laughs> And from that, Fellini weaved one of the most magical works in cinema. So that was my dare. Could I do something? Could I do? Could I write about writing the way Fellini filmed about film cinema, or, or the, the the idea of making cinema? 
Does that answer your question? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't so far as it gives me a good springboard to try and think about because obviously there was the big transition. I remember you mentioning, I swear I read an article that you'd written for The Guardian or The Age or something somewhere about describing your experience with COVID and getting home and somehow managing to kind of get home and then kind of being somewhat bereft as to what next to do. I felt that with Damascus, I honestly thought that that would be just in terms of the scale of it and what you were, what you were attempting to do and did so well. And that's why you kind of received a slew of accolades for it was that it was the investigation of faith within this sort of setting. And I think I read an article, it was either a foreword that you'd done Christos or it was somewhere I'd read somewhere else. And you were talking about as a young man going into, going into a church and kind of uh, having a, a spiritual moment there. And I felt in many regards, seven and a half, was kind of an examination of a different but no less important faith, which was the faith in the kind of creative soul and the creative process as well, which is something that I think is, is even more ineffable and actually more difficult to kind of uh, to describe. So I actually feel that on the brief, on paper, <laughs> it's not being punny, you were making a, an even more challenging sort of premise for yourself in terms of execution. What do you reckon? I think the idea of seven and a half is more... Look, Sam, to be really honest, I think that there is a kind of intuition that you have when you're you know, working on something. Um, I think if you, if you become too overwhelmed by the question of what you're doing, that you, you get blocked. That's, that's what the block is, you mm. know, when you think I'm not capable of doing this. So, so in a way, I had to put those questions aside. Where you're absolutely right is... Uh, you know, there are two things at work in Damascus that have, have enriched my life. And that is understanding that, uh, that faith is really important. And when I talk about faith, I mean it both in that sacred sense mm. and in the sense of something called love and charity. And I'm, I'm not going to divorce those two words. To me, they're, they're bound up bound up in one another that the, the notion of faith but equally as important is the notion of doubt of, um, of of constant questioning and i think for a long time i had run away from doubt i thought that i was weak mm. when i was doubting in my personal life when i was doubting in my intellectual life when i was doubting in my political life Seven and a half feels like it's a novel that I've that I began having learned that lesson from um, working on Damascus. That doubt is actually one of the greatest thing, uh, things I can bring to my fictional, to my, my imaginative life, to to my being a writer. I think it's strange to say that because you go right back to my first works, and I think they're they're always they're, they're always shifting the. The, the sense of the moral, of the ethical, of the, the personal. As they're not, you know, I, I hope they're not didactic works in, in, in any sense. So I think that's been part of my temperament and my knowledge for a long time. But it, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to bring that to bear in seven and a half and say, look, uh, there is something about doubt and that questioning and never feeling surety that I think is actually one of the most important parts of being a writer, being an, an imaginative person in this world. Very much. It was actually incredibly freeing to write this novel, Sam. It felt like 
maybe in a sense, I all these, you know, you know, all these things that have been in my head and whirling around for a long, 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 long time on the page. Um, I, I think I had been nervous that if I spoke through doubt, that I would be seen as Nandy Pandy or wishy-washy or, you know, uh, and, and I, I don't think that's true at all. I think actually doubt is now one of the most important principles guiding the way I want to work as a writer and want to be as a person in the world. It's very interesting that you mentioned doubt and uh, the posing of questions because there's plenty throughout seven and a half. But uh, one thing that you mentioned there that I find quite interesting too is you mentioned love and faith and not wanting to divorce the two and or couldn't, couldn't divorce the two. And I think that that's very apt. And it also sort of applies, or at least my interpretation of seven and a half was, was beauty and creativity and how I felt uh, from my reading of it that, uh, that you might've been saying they were intrinsically bound. There's a few different types of beauty that you see or that I've seen uh, that's pervasive throughout seven and a half, particularly, and I wanted to kind of start off having a little bit of a discussion about the beauty of the physical scape. Uh, that someone's in and the various different sort of animals, flora, fauna, etc. Because the opening scene, the most, one of the most arresting bits of imagery throughout, obviously, is the group family of cockatoos taking flight. But there's several other sort of scenes throughout. Um, even the, I think the octopus and the crab, I'd probably argue, is pretty epic. But there's a beauty to that and a majesty to that as well. And I wanted you to talk a little bit, Christos, particularly because it feels like... Uh, creativity is fueled by beauty and beauty it's impossible to not be inspired particularly by the beauty of nature and I thought that that was something that you thought was to be quite an arresting sort of theme that you explored throughout seven and a half look I think there is the um, maybe and maybe this is where the pandemic pandemic was uh the crystal, if you like, that, that made the uh, the novel possible. It just gave me pause, right? It gave all of us a pause, you know, whether we wanted it or not, it happened. Uh, I have, and my relationship to the natural world is one of deep curiosity. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I've been conscious that for a long time I've lived in the contemporary, I've lived in the, uh, in the urban. Uh, and I've, I've been feeling for the last few years uh, strangely alienated from from that contemporary urban world uh, 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 an almost moral disgust because it feels like you know and maybe again this is coming through the the, the, the experiences of writing Damascus uh, that I just couldn't believe the surety that people seem to have. <laughs> And you, when you're in the in the contemporary world now, you're this screen. The mm. screen is everywhere. You know, the the phone is by your side. The yeah, you're, you're, it, it feels like there's information bombarding you all the time. And and it's only when I take a walk or when I go down to the sea or when I just pause that I feel like I have uh, a moment. I, I, I have this stillness that I absolutely, absolutely love. Mm. And I don't feel a, a, a stranger to myself. Now, that's part of the, 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 the beauty that, um, that I cherish. I'm not 
in my curiosity but about the natural natural world and it's interesting you, you you pick that moment between the octopus and the crab i'm not a romantic when it comes to the natural world <laughs> you know i think there is a there is a violence in it there mm. is a, a a strict amorality <laughs> that is quite confronting for us as humans you know, especially if you don't have a conception of an all-knowing um, in, interventionist God, right? <laughs> so that, that, then, then it is frightening, absolutely frightening. And that, that element of the, uh, of the, the of what is frightening in, in nature is, is probably a, a kind of a, a leaping off point for, for, for seven and a half as well. Um, you know, the... The film, the film references throughout the book, including the film that is talked about that the, the, the writer wants to create, they're about a descent into uh, an underworld. Mm. You know? I'm consciously using the, the Orpheus story from the Cocteau film, but from, the, from the, the ancient tradition. And I do think there is something hellish as well as something elegiac in nature. <laughs> And I don't think you can get to a notion of beauty in that full sense if you don't take that journey, if you don't understand that that's, that's part of coming to, um, to understand what the beautiful is. You know, I, I, uh, the guide, uh, and there's always a guide, you know, in the descent to, um, into Hades, is, is that love and charity. And in this case, for the writer, it is Simon, who is based on my partner, Wayne. Uh, uh, that's, that's what's given me uh, a... It's kind of... The, the way to describe it is... You know, to, is I'm, I'm a little bit like Hansel or Gretel, you know, but that there's, there's these little... Um, markers that I leave behind that 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 form a trail right back to love and 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 I think that I wanted to give a sense of that in the novel and in the the, the story within the story of, of seven and a half I actually think that it takes him into a deeper hell than I've ever been to this is the character of Paul Carrigan in the novel mm-hmm. when he got US I think he's his love for Jenna and his love for his son, Neil, are also part of that trail that can lead him back. It's interesting that you mentioned um, stillness and going out and kind of giving, I feel it gives, the way I took from what you just said then, Christos, as well as the book itself, is it gives a newfound appreciation for what matters, I guess, and it kind of harkens on touching what you've said about the pandemic, the fires are mentioned as well, as well as their effects um, throughout. But I felt that when you mentioned this, this stillness that you found or returning you know, away from phones and screens, because there's another good line that you've got about, uh, we live inside our heads and we live inside our screens or something like that. I wrote it down, but I think I'm paraphrasing it maybe. And I thought that this sort of stillness and this appreciation for, for what is what matters. And ultimately I like hearing love is love is the, and the Hansel and Gretel description there. Um, but then I feel that you also, so you've utilized within seven and a half and kind of what you've just said, the, that beauty and the stillness that it kind of affords within this natural beauty gives a new perspective. I liked a discussion that happened kind of when 
Christo was discovering what it was exactly that he wanted to write. And he said, I want to write about beauty. And Andrew immediately challenged them and said, you can't, you can't write about beauty. And then kind of that also touches on almost what you were saying about coming home and then this feeling about what's, what's, you know, this obligation, whether it's a social commentary to write about something as timely uh, and topical as the pandemic or ever worsening climate crisis, et cetera. And then to, not write about that or choose to not write about that and instead focus on something kind of as amorphous and eternal as beauty is something I feel that, that people would comment or, or criticize one for in this day and age. It feels that every sort of book and you write quite um, really deftly describing as to what sort of books one can encounter in bookshops now when they do visit and how they all have to have <laughs> some sort of topical message. But this, this notion of beauty and trying to just delve into that. And before, obviously, the Paul Caravan story kind of came to fruition. What do you reckon, Christos? Is that something that to write about beauty is something that's kind of met with just derision now rather than uh, if someone was to write about something seemingly it's considered cutting-edge topical? I think the, uh, the demand to be topical uh, and the demand to have a firm opinion seems really dominant. Mm. I think there's no uh, getting away from that. Um, you know, I'm not a fool. I understand only too well the history, the cultural politics, the politics, the, the, the histories that have led to that imperative. But it's not mine anymore. And look, I know one, feels, I'm going to keep returning to Damascus because in a way it's the lessons learned there, right? Mm. That, that shadow that is cast across seven and a half or probably cast across my life now because of uh, uh, because I, I, I rediscovered that I have uh, faith in the sacred. Even if I don't know how to name it, that doesn't matter. I do have that. And I've, I have been fortunate to have had the experience in that stillness that I described before of, of feeling a profound gratitude mm. um, to this ineffable notion let's call it god because there is it's 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 a term that can come close to uh explaining the sensations i feel when i'm talking about it the other thing i learned in writing damascus and i have to is that i'm not a protestant sam mm. right i'm not a uh that conversation between the christo and the novel and andrea in a way is, uh, is not dissimilar to the final confrontation between Paul and Thomas in Damascus, right? Where Thomas says, it is in this world. If you, if you want to find the message of my brother, this man called Jesus, yet, you know, it's going to be in this world. Don't worry about the world to come. And I absolutely understand that. Um, uh, I, I feel grateful that my... Even when I ran away from it, um, and I'm not in, an, in, in any sense um, arguing that one is a better faith tradition than the other, that's not the point I'm, I'm, I'm making. But I loved, and really early on in seven and a half, I go back to my childhood and how do I begin this journey into the central world, the world of beauty? Father and my mother taking me into a Greek Orthodox church mm. in Innocent, right? And, and the sensations I experience, the smells, the, Smell. the, 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 the set of ritual that that faith tradition has given me. When I say I'm not a Protestant, I, I'm not, 
I'm not suspicious of the world I'm in. I find it sometimes perplexing, genuinely perplexing that the people who seem to me most uh, enraged and passionate about climate, about the suffering in the world, don't take that don't seem to convey anything about what is beautiful in the moment of this world. <laughs> so what they're defending is a world to come. Mm. I've experienced that uh, as a Christian in, when I was uh, when I was an evangelical trying to fight my sexuality and thinking that if I made that bargain with God <laughs> to be saved and I when I started getting uh, involved in uh, left-wing communist politics I'm mattered not as in the world now that's the most heretical I am it feels in the contemporary world I'm actually don't give a fuck about the world to come the world to come will come and that doesn't mean that there can't be things I do in the world now to hopefully make it a better world. I hope that anyone listening understands that's, that's not what I'm saying. But mm. I'm not, you know, this is the world I, I, I live in. And there are things that makes me furious about the world. But really, I love it. And it's that I, I absolutely do love it. And... Strange, isn't it? Why is that? Why is that heretical now? I don't know. It feels like uh, does is it because on Andrea in the in the novel, Andrea, I guess, is suggesting that in in stating that you are legit, you you're making excuses for what is suffering. I think uh, I would stand aside from that and say both things are possible that you can be conscious of the suffering and you can be humbled by it and you can be animated by it, uh, but that doesn't foreclose being enraptured by the beauty. Mm. That's a good way of putting it. That is a good way of putting it, Christos, because, like, to me, thinking that uh, I totally understand. I myself am an atheist, but I can appreciate why um, people would, would look forward to an afterlife. But I feel that to only consider or, or kind of aspire to that sort of second life or second world afterlife, whatever that might be, I think that that would then potentially uh, or quite easily deny you the beauty and splendour of this one. So I think that that's kind of my takeaway from that a little bit. Not to say that um, it doesn't diminish any sort of religious faith that someone has within within a sort of promised afterlife but I feel that kind of the mentioning what you mentioned about the stillness that one finds and the appreciation for beauty and that and the natural would be potentially diminished if you if you didn't get to focus on the immediacy of the now as it were kind of thing well, look and there's you know there's a there's an element to that uh you know with that uh and yes uh, please be conscious that I'm aware and in some ways I'm using Protestantism or Puritan, and maybe Puritanism is a more valid yeah. conception of what I'm talking about. That, that you know, that again, this is a novel that I want. It, what was really joyous was to to be reminded of how inspirational those first uh, uh, twinges of the erotic were for me as a little boy. Mm, mm. You know, the the, the um, the sense of the uh, men that I adored, the, uh, the the fact that I can still get pleasure in in loving the the beauty of the body uh, again, and I think 
you know, the, one of the characters in the novel, well, two of the characters in the novel uh, uh, have, you know, have had experience of being pornographic actors. They mm. are, they are, their experience is both, it led them to one another, but it's also been a, a really difficult, complex, hard experience as well. I'm not at all um, blind to the danger within sex. But man, that pleasure and that danger are to me, in, in, they, they go together. Uh, I, I do mean it. And, you know, there are places where I can stand aside and go, don't, you know, there is, I'm playing a game. Uh, uh, maybe a kind of game with you where I'm saying have an element of doubt to how much this Christos is the Christos in, in the book, that, you know, or the Christos who wrote this book. But I do think, I do think that this notion of safety that seems dominant in our world at the moment is, is actually, what's the opposite? It's actually deadening for us as readers, as film goers, you know, that, that we, uh, you know, uh, I, now the first books are, you know, you know, when you first fall in love with books and you read something that feels absolutely frightening and you, 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 you know, it corresponds to emotions you've had and you want to chuck it away because you're so disturbed by it or, or you see a film that suddenly illuminates uh, something that you thought was secret only to you and mm -hmm. you want deny its power. Mm. That's what actually led me to being a writer. It's actually confronting that. It's actually dealing with that. It's actually being uh, stimulated by that. And while um, I, I think safety is uh, safety, I understand the desire for it. Uh, you know, I come from a family background where I know what it means not to feel safe because of really big, big calamities. Uh, you know, whether it's poverty or war or civil war, mm. uh, I absolutely, I understand why my parents made a life in this country and why they wanted my brother and I to feel safe. Uh, yet, I'll go back to <laughs> those two, two words fortune and love, they also, in creating that gave me an opportunity to, I was scared for a long, long time about it, but that sucker of their love meant that I could do that, I could take those leaps. Um, and I've been fortunate in my relationship, I've been fortunate in my friendships, I've been fortunate in having those those spaces which can hold me in my greatest pain. But, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think feeling safe, wanting everything to be safe is a really dangerous thing because then you can't leave the world. You can't be in the world because the yeah. world is not safe. Yeah. What I take away from that is safety, as in physical safety, is, is, is to, be, to be wanted and that's fair enough. I feel like maybe safety of the mind or the lived experience uh, is kind of where it can be sort of the scourge of insight.
that's kind of what I'd probably take yeah. away from that a bit there. And I was going to, you, you dovetailed nicely, Christos. You did half my job for me. You asked the, you asked a lot of the <laughs> questions about with the, this, this, the sexual one. One of the things that I've always liked about your writing, Christos, and I think it is because um, it is, and I guess it's kind of harking right back to when you were kind of getting knocked back trying to get your first books out there because some of the people said it was a bit obscene or it was a bit too too full on. Um, and then obviously that's become something that's been embraced and treasured by not just um, that, that generation but also me. Um, and I think that with the sexuality component and the way I, again, took it away is that we're seeing this through the lens of this person, Christo Christos, uh, and the creative process in which they've kind of uh, fashioned for themselves over the career of the or the lifetime of their career. And I think that the only way I can kind of take from that is that it would not be the same without that sexuality component. I feel like that is so deeply ingrained within the within the creative process and the shaping of this this figure, this creative soul into what uh, into what they are into penning the seven and a half, albeit this this fictionalized version. Because that's the way in which they see the world and that's the way in which they, they love the world and love the people in it. And that's the way in which they've sexualized or their sexuality has developed within the course of it. And I mean, this, the standouts and there's always, I never know what they're going to be, but I just know they're going to be, be good in terms of, and you mentioned there's a, there's a bit of, not a throwaway line, but there's a mention about how everything is erotic and that's just so true. And I feel that everyone, maybe they're a little bit scared about divulging it, but they were certainly harking right back or back into the, their youth or even before that of seeing, uh, be it family members or other sort of seemingly innocuous sort of encounters which have a sexual element or an appreciation for something sexual. Um, I like the teacher at the moment with the kind teacher, the uncle situation, the situation in the toilet with the, in the public toilet with the, the angelic sort of um, uh, blonde-haired boy, yeah, all, all that, all that, and that's kind of what I what I expect from a Crystal Stalkos novel is is that sort <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> uh, look, you know the, you know there there is a line that for me when I wrote it, you know I looked at it and looked at it and I said, is it right? And I thought, yeah, it is right. Um, and it comes after the 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 narrator's contemplation of a boy on the beach, you know, a young man on the beach, and he comes back home and he writes a description of that youth because he wants to never forget that beauty, and at the end he says, "This is not an English novel." And again, I'm, you know, you you, you know, I'm, I love the English novel. I write in English, but there is a sense of the erotic that I have that is. You know, it infuses all our, all my experience, and mm. I feel I felt like in writing seven and a half to deny that that power and that potency and that inspiration would be uh, would be a betrayal of who, of myself um, to 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 be a little bit melodramatic about it, Sam. Uh, uh, and 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 in an age where I think, and it comes back again to. Uh, to this notion of puritanism that I have never been comfortable with, it feels like we're really terrified of writing that aspect of sex. Mm. And yes, I understand it. I understand the history of violence, the history of misogyny, the history of homophobia. But my sense of what it is, what freedom is, what being in love is, is also... Uh, uh, comes from understanding what the, uh, the, the, the power of the erotic is. Mm. I, I, you know, I feel like we're a little bit afraid of that now because of those histories. Not, again, uh, and it's also, you know, I'm a queer writer. 
Mm. I'm a writer. Uh, 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 I start the book uh, epigram from Jean Genet. And one of the great, and, and this is probably, you know, all these inspirations soak into, into the work you do. So I, I hadn't read Genet for a long time and I decided um, uh, two years ago that I was going to reread all of him. And just the excitement of reading a writer that I once loved and fell in love with again and realising how dangerous his work was, you know, and how, how, yeah, inspirational it had been as a young man to read those works, even when I bloody didn't understand them. Like, you know, I had to do a lot of work to finish my first Genet and then I kept going back because I knew that there was something there. And, you know, his, you know, the novel is not a humanitarian report. Mm. You know, there is cruelty. Uh, and that, that, that's a great insight. Those, those perverse, challenging unafraid novels and films guided me. They guided me uh, as a writer, but more importantly, as a human being in, the, in this world. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. You know, the, the Seven and a Half is also a novel written by a man who was in his, you know, I was uh, 54 when I, when I started. I'm 50, I've just turned 56, right? So there is a sense of the looking back that happens when you're at this age. Uh, uh, that notion of the interconnection between the pleasurable and the dangerous is part of my experience growing up as a, as a queer boy, as a queer youth in, in, this, in, in this world. Uh, the, the elation I felt when I first realised I could go and suck a cock in a toilet block at 15 with the absolute terror that, that I would be discovered and arrested and the shame that that would bring on to my family. They're, they're, they're interconnected. Mm. I became, uh, I, I entered adulthood when the scourge of HIV AIDS was killing beautiful young people. Uh, and, you know, has the world ever been safe? No, mm. <laughs> you know, uh, as, as the, the erotic ever been safe? No. Uh, and I don't believe, I don't believe it ever will be even in the worlds to come. Mm. Do, do you think Christoph said that, that, that it's becoming more puritanical and the, the, the sort of dangerous books that you're talking about there that had such an influence on you as a, as a young man, do you think that they're, they're lessening in terms of either the amount of which they're being produced or published or do you think that it's becoming more of a profusion of them? I think there's a, look, always the, you know, the, the, you know, one of the things that you can do as a fiction writer, one of the things you can do in writing is is kind of set up those, set, you know, ask that, that very question, right? You know, and and the, the narrator asks those sort of questions. When we're speaking now in the real world between us, you know, ourselves, uh, I, I always pause because there's the danger of the generalisation. I think there are books mm. being written. Like, I, am, I am absolutely aware of the con... Yes, publishers are saying... I. I don't know if I could publish this. Mm. Writers are saying, I don't know if I could write this. The pause, a hesitation comes in. Sometimes they're really good questions to ask. You mm. know, of, um, 
So take the most pertinent and important in terms of the Australian context, you know. Uh, you know, I, what is there to write about, you know, what, what can I offer as a white fella in mm. terms of writing about Aboriginal life? Because there's so many great writers who can do that, who, who, who can, you know, but, uh, absolutely, absolutely know that. Uh, yet at the same time, you want to address the question of what it is to live, particularly if you're writing about the contemporary moment, um, what it is to live as a white fellow in this world as well. Um, so to do that honestly is hard. Mm. At the moment, I think because, and you can't do it very well as a fiction writer if you are constantly looking over your shoulder. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not someone. Who, I mean, I'm not going to name them. There's a lot of books I've read over the last few years where I don't believe the characters because they're wearing black hats and white hats, and it may be now that the uh, the, the good guys are wearing the black hats and the bad guys are wearing the white hats, but it's the same bloody stereotypical story and it's not a human story. I just think that that sense of, uh, of supervision of our imagination is just... And again, but with that, uh, but I am conscious, yeah, that I don't know if you've... I use the term grand to describe myself because Anise has used that because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not on social media. I, I, uh, but that is, I think that's stood me in good stead as a writer because it feels like when you are too immersed in that world, and this is just an observation, I'm not <clears> speaking from, I think you get caught in the mire of the ephemeral <laughs> and you, yeah, you lose sight of, you've got to, you've got to trust so doubt, self-doubt is going to be part of what is your experience as an artist from the get-go, right? It's, got, it's going to be a challenge that is daily uh, in that exchange between Crystal and Andrea, you know, when she says, you can't write that book about beauty. Basically, mm. you're not good enough. Can I do this? Am I, am I you know? Maybe I'm just not good enough. That 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 going into the ring and wrestling with uh, the the demon of doubt happens daily. Um, but you've also to persevere. Have to have a trust in an intuitive, in, in intuition that that you know. And it, you know, I started an, uh, you know we started this conversation and I was talking about a novel that went nowhere. Mm. You know? How do I know nowhere? Partly because. Wayne read some of it and he read, he read some of Resentment and some of Seven and a Half and he went, Seven and a Half is the one that's for me. 
but I also knew it intuitively. I knew it wasn't any good. I worried that the intuitive sense gets compromised if you're lost in the world of social media and the phone and the screen because you don't have that you don't have access to that stillness mm -hmm. absolutely essential for the creative process and and, and that, that that does concern me you know um you know i i sam i it's like i've got a synapse missing right um, I, I just had this conversation with a really good friend uh, the other day who's a filmmaker and they were wondering, oh, you know, I'm, ju I'm just worried about this project because of what they might say, I can't, you know, on Twitter. And I was like, you don't know these people. Why the fuck do you care? <laughs> like, really? Like, it will, it, will be, it will be an outrage for an hour and a half and then you will, it will be forgotten. I, mm. and, when I say I feel like I have a synapse missing, it feels like that there's something that happens in that. Now, I know what it's like to feel wounded by criticism, of course, mm. right? Uh, but uh, 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 I feels like they're being wounded all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in that relationship. And, and is it old-fashioned? Is my niece right? Maybe she is. Maybe it's old-fashioned, but they have grown up in a world where the ubiquity of the screen is their reality mm. uh, i let me be agnostic on that sense as well maybe you know that there will be a a, a a new form of creation and art and expression and imagination that 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 will i will just go wow i i you know and 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 be elated by um but at the moment i'm agnostic I, I just think that it's a waste of time and i think it's i do think I think it is deadening to that intuition that I'm talking about. I agree with you. Um, I think that it is, and I, this is sort of, sort of the brave new world in which it's kind of um, some, seemingly somewhat unavoidable. I mean, I, I dare say I use social media a lot. I'd probably argue that I don't use it as much as, as, as some, uh, but I do you know, spend you know, probably an obscene amount of time per day looking at my phone. I think I read a lot more than, than, than some people and you know, I, I write, but... Um, I still spend an inordinate amount of time looking at it, and I still don't think that I'd be kind of. I reckon I'd be kind of midway through the spectrum there in terms of the way that people use social media. But I think you're right, Christos. I think that it is kind of part and parcel with this sort of pervasive new sense of uh, safe and safe writing, and kind of that can be to the detriment, I guess. Of uh, and again, you mentioned before not being too melodramatic. Oh, you can say you're pointing. <laughs> Uh, I was just thinking about this, you know, uh, uh, one of the disciplines of the last 10 years of my writing life, which I'm really grateful for, is I've been a regular film reviewer for the Saturday paper. And it's like, you know, you write, uh, uh, you write on a film, it's not a daily or a weekly, it's uh, maybe once every five weeks. Mm. Um, but I love criticism. I, I love, you know, uh, one of the inspirations in my writing life was the, uh, the great American film critic Pauline Kale, who I discovered in the library uh, when I was uh, 14. And uh, fuck, I love the pugnacity of her writing and her, her intuition and her acumen. Uh, and that she could talk about the contradictions in your responses to a work of art, right? And I, I just said, I, I was just writing in a review just now that, that I hate this 
simplistic notion that has infiltrated the arts of is it a thumbs up or is it a thumbs down? Mm -hmm. How many stars are you going to give it? And sometimes you're dealing with really complex, contradictory, not quite successful work, but that even in they're not being quite successful, they're pointing to someone or they're to something or they're conveying something that is, you know, it's, it's, it's still not quite formed, but it is worth experiencing that book, that film, that, that piece, that painting, that, that piece of music, because it's trying to get somewhere. Mm. And if you had to give it a star, maybe it would be three, but really that doesn't convey what I've just talked about. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that simplistic notion has to do with, uh, yeah, so thumbs up, thumbs down is, is it right or is it wrong? Is it correct or is it incorrect? Is it, um, and it's like, uh, that's not, I don't think that's how we work as humans in our world. That's not how we work as daughters, sons, lovers, friends, colleagues, comrades. And that's not how pe- uh, works of art are, mm. <laughs> that, you know. But, so I think that is a that is a dangerous. Oh, dangerous is probably too again, you know, too heavy a word. It's an insidious aspect of the contemporary culture mm. that I think has been uh, made possible. Is you know, I think the um, the simplicity of uh, two hundred characters in a text or a mm. or a like like makes possible. What I liken to that, and it's something I've noticed um, since since my youth, is back in the day would go to particularly because you mentioned film as well, and I think it's kind of adjacent. Is you'd go to the video shop and you get a video. And you'd watch it come hell or high water, you, you, you'd be watching it. You know, you would ingest it as it's meant to be ingested from cover to cover. Whereas now you don't need to do that. And because you're just uh, inundated with all these sort of streaming options that you have, people won't necessarily consume a film in its entirety anymore because they just don't need to. They'll give it two minutes and then, and then scrap it. And I think that's kind of similar, Christos, to what you're talking about. There's oversimplification. That's kind of another insidious sort of component is which no longer is there sort of any uh, emphasis on ingesting something in its entirety, consuming it, and then kind of, you know, ruminating over your thoughts and talking of others. It's just kind of giving it two minutes and saying, well, fuck that, and then going to the next thing. That's kind of, for me, kind of troubling as well. Oh, look, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, that is, you know, that is, goes back to that, that stillness we were talking about, Sam, that mm. uh, you you need to actually work at creating that for yourself at this present moment. That's just, that's how we are living in the world. Uh, that uh, if you, yeah, you, you just consciously have to set the, the, the time to, to actually say, I am going to read, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm going to listen to uh, a work of music that someone has put together and I'm going to sit in real time and listen to it through. Uh, uh, now, the, the Grandpa Simpson part of me is that I find that I have to negotiate then technology to, mm. to do that. So I still have a turntable. I never let go of my turntable because I know, I'm, you know, I, I, I got an iPod as quick as I could because I 
you know, I love the idea of having all this music accessible to me, you mm. know, R-E-Loaded, that is autobiography. I love my Walkman, my Discman, you know, that was like, that was my prized possession. I love the soundtrack my walk through my, my environment, and I've never lost that. But I found that I wasn't an MP3 player, that I was skipping, skipping, you know, that I wasn't giving it space. Mm-hmm. The only way I've found that I can do that is if I buy, if I listen to something and I think there's something in this music that, I ch- that I'm chasing, I'll buy it on LP and I'll put it on the turntable and I'll sit down as I did when I was 14, 15, sit on the sofa. If it's got the liner notes, I'll read them. If it's got the lyrics and I will, I will give it time. Mm. You know, that, that's, that's, and you know, I, you know, I, I watch movies on TV all the time, but there's nothing to me that re- it can't replace the intimacy of the cinema. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there, um, it's you know, and, and again, it's a form of ritual. Now, that's me, Christos Chalkis, right? Uh, that's how I've decided to negotiate the world I live in. Again, as I said, people are growing up in a completely vastly different experience of what it means to be consumed uh, mm-hmm. and not only consumed can have a pejorative sense but also appreciate art you know that I, I'm not uh, I'm not going to make a judgment because I don't know enough <laughs> I don't mm. know what the future will be and I don't know what great work will come out of that experience of a frag of fragmentation um, uh, but just if you're asking for myself, that's that's how I, I ne- negotiate the um, I negotiate the world at the moment. You know? Don't worry, I spend too much time on the screen now. <laughs> so I don't think so. But um, what I take away from that, I guess, is kind of doubt. Doubt is good breeding ground for healthy, robust questions that kind of evolve into discourses, whether internally of yourself. Uh, or with other people, and ultimately, I think that that can then lead to novels. There's one line I wrote it down. There's one line I had early on that talks about novels emerge from splendid isolation, and I was like, I like that because I, I I can get behind that in terms of in terms of that sort of experience, and I think that that's true. It's just allocating the time, like you mentioned, the time. Also, another thing, the time, t- yeah. the turntables. Christos, I don't think that that's uh, Grandpa Simpson. I think they're very much in vogue. You probably go down <laughs> with the hipsters in, in, in sort of inner city Melbourne there. So I wouldn't worry too much about that, man. Oh, look, you know where I will worry about it? And I'll say it, Sam, because it is a concern. Is, um, I don't want it only to be the hipster, right? Because the hipster is the bourgeois subject, is the bourgeois person, right? Um, I don't want the... Uh, 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 and thankfully, I don't think it is just the hipster, right? I just, I want it to be, there's a real, sometimes it is, I, I, I don't know any writer, artist, filmmaker who's come from a similar background brand to, to mine, which is migrant and working class, or just working class. It doesn't have to be, I'm not going to specify it in terms of, of the person your race. Like, and that you feel in the, in the, uh, in the, Becoming educated in the work you do, you're kind of in this no person's land because you can't speak as as uh, from that class position, but 
you you can't you know you feel uh, an immense responsibility about it and then I, was, I had a wonderful conversation with um one of our great writers tony birch about this the other day and we were both you know and he he's he was illuminating about it but that 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 denial is really destructive mm. and so i i want you know i I, I, you know, I think I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, there will be hoping I listen to the same table to recognise the table because there's there's still you know there's still not enough of that voice in 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 the culture. I think what I liked is uh, towards the tail end of the book, and that kind of feel just remind me when you're describing it is when someone just point blank asks Christo, "Are you a writer?" And there's a lot of lovely, lovely, lovely prose there, which I don't want to kind of spoil too much, but it kind of ended, that paragraph ended with talking about how it felt like being, no matter what, being locked out the gates of the castle of aristocracy or the aristocratic. And I'm like, man, that's so well put, like in terms of that with your, with your experience, it just really hits the nail on the head. But um, Christos, the main question I've got to end with, because I, I, it's, it's kind of the crux of, of the podcast and no two questions, no, no two answers are ever the same. And your particular story and journey up to this point is particularly fascinating to me. So I want to know when uh, there was a time, if there was one particular time or if there's been a few, but if there has been any sort of instance that you yourself have, and we've talked about self-doubt, but if there was one particularly bleak sort of period leaving you sort of bereft and questioning whether you're going to continue or not, whether you're going to continue writing and you ultimately didn't, you prevailed and here we are now, or if you were going to listen to the demon sitting on your shoulder with its forked tongue tickling in the crook of your ear and saying, give up and what uh, kind of happened to make you keep going there. Whoa. Yeah, look, uh, I think uh, there was, uh, when I was much younger, uh, I, I, on my second novel, Mm. The Jesus Man, where I worked, which I did work on and which um, meant something to me and still means something to me. And then it came out and I think there'd been the success, you know, the limited success of, of Loaded, but it, uh, there was some particularly damning reviews and I felt flayed uh, mm. because uh, I wondered, yeah, I really thought, I don't know if I have the fortitude. Mm. I think I don't know if I have the strength to to continue doing this. Uh, uh, I I I really doubted myself, and I also it wasn't as much the writing, Sam. I'm just trying to think through the, those emotions all the time. I just mm. doubted where. Well, some of course it was about the writing, but it was it was also like a I don't know if I can be this naked in the world mm. uh, and then what I discovered I discovered two things uh, was that actually I am bloody minded <laughs> yeah, and that 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 actually that I, I I realized at the end of that kind of descent into uh, fierce 
loathing of oneself mm. and, and 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 sense of failure that actually yeah I, I i didn't know what else i wanted to be all i all i knew is that i wanted to keep writing so i, did, I just kept writing <laughs> uh the 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 and there was a moment where i realized and this is my story as a thing seven and a half is about is how we do as a writer you have to tell yourself and, and um in order to persevere that nothing nothing equaled you know, nothing the world could throw at me equaled the, the, the challenge of truly being myself to my mum and dad, coming in, which is, was coming out. And coming out is too simple a term to explain what I mean. So, um, but in a sense to go, um, I'm going to trust that these people who love me will love me in all my totality. And I'd gone through that. And I was just reflecting on that, I thought, which is why I have this confusion when people tell me about what's been going on on some social media feed and I just go, what does it matter? Mm, mm. The people that matter are the people you love, really. If you, I mean, that's, to be really honest, Sam, I, I, I think every artist of any sort has to go through that. That's, that's a descent into Hades and the coming out. It's just going, oh, actually... It doesn't really matter, um, but uh, uh, so yes, I, that that would be my response to your question. I would also say that what also was a was a, um, helped me there. Another kind of illumination was uh, a friend grabbed my hand and brought me into theatre, which was a world that I really didn't know. I didn't grow. I didn't have that kind of you know. I just didn't grow up with theatre as a, a reality in my world. And uh, and they asked me to write a piece for a theatre production. And in collaboration, I, I, I found another form of joy, another way of writing. So that that, that, that period feels uh, uh, really, really important. You know, this is over, oh my God, this is over 20 years ago, so maybe, you know, so that's that's some time ago. But that, that was the darkest moment I, I had as a writer. Uh, there was also a point in writing Dead Europe, uh, and this is not unconnected to that notion of descent mm. and into Hades, and it's um, where that was such a bleak novel because it was, you know, that was about my break with a faith in politics, you know, that, 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 that you know, that um, even more severe than my break with God when I was younger, because I was a man, you know, I was a, you know, when, when that happened. But, uh, and that took me into some really, uh, real bleak uh, sense of what the, of what we can do to one another. Hmm. And I thought, I thought I'd better stop writing it because I was going into places that are, are not good for me. And I did find and I write about it in seven and a half. I did, I did get my dad to check for the evil eye. <laughs> I did, I, I did, you know, uh, and I did realise that, you know, the 
and maybe this, you know, this may be in contradiction to all I've said earlier, but that there is also a point where recklessness can become idiocy. <laughs> you know, that, also, that, yeah. Christos Mann has been an absolute surreal experience for me because you're one of my favourite Australian writers. So it's just been an absolute joy to speak to you. It's been a joy you. speaking to you as well, Sam. Thank you. Seriously, it's, it's, it's blowing me away. So thank you so much for talking to me on the, on the program today, man. I adored Seven and a Half as I do every single title in which you undertake. I know that I'm, whatever it is, it's going to be something that's going to blow my fucking head off and I'm not going to know what it's, <laughs> what it's going to you're be. Very but... Yeah, man, I, I can't believe I've gotten to speak to you today. There's a, there's a big tick off the, the fucking bucket list. So, yeah, Christos, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you, you know, to being together in real time and, and sharing a drink, all right? Take care, amigo. So, everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to Christos Solkos about his new novel, Seven and a Half. Uh, so, to that end, uh, huge, huge thanks to Christos for being such a, such a brilliant guest and such a good human being. Uh, they say, never meet your idols. I have met one of my idols, and he turned out to be an absolute gentleman and a scholar. So, that's, so I say hogwash to that adage of not meeting your idols. Fuck that. But, um, yeah, absolute pleasure talking to Christos. I am sorry about the audio about that uh, on Christos' send. Um, it's just unavoidable. Uh, I'm hoping that won't detract too much from, from your enjoyment of listening to the great man speak. But um, yeah, just bear with it because it was an absolute pleasure talking to him. It's an absolute pleasure listening back to it as well. Uh, kind of capping off uh, one of the last interviews that are set to be done this year. What a surreal experience. That's just like a, that's just a highlight of this year so far for the program. What a journey it has been. Thank you again so much, Christos, for talking to me and being such a good human being and incredible writer. Thank you also to you, dear listener, as always, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program, as well as all others there in that thing I like to call the ever-proliferating back catalogue. Uh, which is now swollen to 50 plus uh, guests. So there's a veritable wealth of uh, back catalog for you to get listening to. Why not get started right now? Every journey starts with one step or some such nonsense. So yeah, get back there, get listening. And while you're at it, give a cheeky follow on Spotify if you haven't already. Got another couple of guests coming up, all top secret. I'm going to keep everything top secret. And I do apologize as well for not having yet done a movie of uh, a final kind of video on on year old Instagram and stuff, giving you yeah, a kind of cap off of the the year thus far, or what uh, what's going to happen in the future. But I, I will endeavour to do so in the coming coming week or weeks. Uh, get off my back, no jokes. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a work in progress, much like um, other components of my life. But in the interim, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Do check out the others. More coming your way. I'll keep on keeping on if you keep on keeping on too.